Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Let me get situated here real quick. Uh, Happy New Year's Eve to everybody. Um, hope, hopefully you had a good Christmas. I feel like it was a long time ago. I don't know about you. Um, but I got a little sick this week after being sick last week or like a couple weeks ago. I don't, I don't even remember. Um, so, uh, it feels like Christmas was forever ago. And then now all of a sudden it's, uh, it's 2024 tomorrow. So if you can believe it, it's been 24 years since Y2K, uh, that great disaster. Anyway, um, it's always good to start the new year off on the right foot. And what better foot than just to get back into what we've been doing? Uh, I think in the years past, we tried to do some other things. I think last year we actually talked about doing a Bible in a year plan. I don't know if any of you did it. I'm too scared to ask if you did it, but you can always just jump on next year. There's no rule. You got to do it. Um, but this year and kind of what we did during Advent season two, we've just been pushing through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so if you have your Bible, Ecclesiastes eight is where we're going to be. Start off the new year with some wisdom from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Uh, and we are two thirds done after today. So we're, we're almost done with Ecclesiastes. We're kind of getting there. And there's something we're going to do after Ecclesiastes. That's why we're kind of moving. Ecclesiastes eight. Uh, while you turn there, a little story time. Last week, it was before Christmas. Um, my sink broke in the kitchen. It, not the sink. Okay. But it was the faucet. Okay, so for a while, actually, the handle of the faucet has kind of been precariously connected to the rest of the faucet. So sometimes if you turn it a little too hard, the, the handle will kind of fall off. But you could just stick it back on, and it worked fine. You could get hot water and cold water. Uh, but finally, it had had enough, and the whole thing, just it just broke apart. So we went onto this new website called Amazon.com, and we bought a faucet. And the thing about this faucet was it had a lot of good reviews, which was important. It was cheap, and it was coming fast. It would come in like two days or whatever. Um, but one of the, the best things, maybe the best thing about this faucet that we bought was its supposed ease of installation. Okay, so it said like in big letters, 30 seconds or less. 30 seconds. So I'm not the handiest person, but I'm like, if, even if it takes me 10 times as long, right? That's five minutes. So it's not that long. So the faucet arrives, I pull out the instructions and I look through it as, as a person like me might do, who doesn't really know what to do. So I read the instructions, step one, step two, step three. It's really straightforward. Okay. You just take off the old one and put in the new one. That's what it says. Seems pretty easy. Piece of cake. Bada bing, bada boom. Anyway, I get started and that's when I go off course a little bit. Okay, that's when some unforeseen obstacles arise. Our hot water, uh, our hot water under the sink, it doesn't turn off all the way. Okay, it's a little old. It's one of those. Um, so this meant for every second I disconnected it, it would leak. Okay, so I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, I could turn off the whole water to the, like the water to the house. Do I want to do that? I double checked the instructions to mentally calculate how long the other steps would take. And I figured a little bucket underneath should be fine. I don't need to go through all the hassle. So I disconnect the hot water and I put a bucket under there and it's dripping a little bit, but it's fine. And then I go to lift the faucet, the old faucet off the sink and it doesn't move obviously because I didn't unscrew it. So I look at the instructions I'm like, what, where did I go wrong? And step number four or whatever is unscrew the old faucet. So I go back and I have to reconnect the hot water because my bucket's too small. And then I have to redo the whole thing and then I unscrew it. And I keep going back to the instructions and then back to the sink. And then I go under the sink and then I go back to the instructions again and again. Even after all of that, it only took me 29 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. It took way longer than that. I, I feel like I should maybe sue if I wasn't a Christian. The thing is, it always takes longer, right? You know this. If you've ever tried to do something around the house, DIY, trying to make a repair, it always takes longer. It's always more complicated there are always unforeseen obstacles. In the manual, it seems easy. It's straightforward. But in real life, not so much. We might know what to do in our heads, but when it comes time to work with our hands, we always have to troubleshoot. It's never just one, two, three, four, five. It's as Albert Einstein once said, in theory, theory and practice are the same, but in practice, they are not. It's a kind of a high IQ quote that I found. And this is where the preacher of Ecclesiastes is taking us. 
See, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. There are different kinds of books in the Bible, okay? So we talk about the Bible all the time. We preach through the Bible. The Bible is one book. There's a unity to the Scripture. And yet at the same time, and if you've been around church, you know this, the Bible is actually 66 individual books. And there are really different kinds of books in the Bible. You have letters, for example, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, where he's writing something specific to a specific situation and specific people. We can, of course, take lessons from that, but we have to understand the context. There are other books, like First and Second Samuel, which we went through in the past, which is a history section of Scripture, which gives us kind of the story, the narrative, the true narrative of how the kingdom of Israel began, kind of got off the ground. Ecclesiastes is part of what we would call wisdom literature. And wisdom books specifically teach us how to live better with actual instructions toward that end. See, to the Hebrew mind, wisdom wasn't just about enlightenment, okay? You you don't just go up to the mountain and meditate or whatever. It wasn't just about, uh, (coughs) excuse me, pure knowledge (coughs) or theoretical philosophy. It was about how to live a meaningful and better life according to how God designed it. So far, Ecclesiastes has been trying to kind of lay the groundwork for us to live differently. It's not just about changing our minds or informing our thoughts. It's about living a completely different life after we're done with Ecclesiastes 12. Stop living for vanity. Right? If you're trying to find meaning in life in your work or trying to find meaning in life in just feeling good or something like that, Ecclesiastes is saying you're wasting your life. Set your gaze above the sun. Find joy in every station that God has you in. For while everything in life might not be gained, it's still a gift. It's a mindset shift. But wisdom is easier to to read than to do. Okay, we can talk about these things all you want. Don't live for vanity. But then Monday morning, we still got to go to work. We still got to deal with the day-to-day. How do we keep ourselves from just living the way we always did beforehand? How do you actually do this? It's, (coughs) excuse me, it's always more complicated. There are always unforeseen obstacles. And this is what Ecclesiastes 8 is for. Some people think that toward the end of Ecclesiastes, it starts to get repetitive or they already said these things. That's not exactly what it is. What Ecclesiastes 8 and kind of the the chapters around it are doing, what they're doing is they're showing us how to actually deal with the troubles that arise. In theory, right, we read the first part of Ecclesiastes, easy, I'm just going to not live for vanity, I'm going to live for God. But then in real life, there are all these obstacles along the way. So... This is troubleshooting. Let me read the chapter, and then we'll get into it. Okay, so let me read the whole thing, all of Ecclesiastes 8. These are the words of the preacher. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it'll be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity." And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, 
how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time that we could be here. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your grace. God, we're thankful for the wisdom that you allow us to have. God, I pray that you would help us to take these words to heart. God, I pray that you would give us a desire to not waste our lives, but to use them to the fullest, to live them to the fullest. For your glory, God, and for our good, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I like to tell stories. Uh, That's something that I enjoy. But let's do a little straight Bible study here. Okay, the book of Ecclesiastes is not an easy book to understand by any means. It's one of the more difficult books in the Old Testament. But if you look at it kind of big picture, you can see that it breaks apart into four sections, roughly. Okay, so the first part has to do with the preacher's argument. Okay, he, he starts by laying out his contention that everything under the sun is vanity. And that word vanity, hevel in Hebrew, it has to do with something that is fleeting, like smoke or vapor or, or mist, something like that. So many things, they don't really matter because they don't, they don't last. Okay, so like I said before, the things that so many people are, are, are living for, like work or just pleasure, feeling good, these things don't last. They don't give any sort of permanent meaning to your life. The section ends with these words in Ecclesiastes 2. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Okay, so the first part is about how everything is vanity, but God has still given us many things in life to enjoy. The second part is the preacher's observations. He wants to show us, not just tell us, why he thinks the way he thinks. So he points to the seasons and time, how we can't control time, how we can't slow it down. He talks about other people, how we have to reckon with the fact that there are other individuals out there who can affect our lives, even if we don't want them to. And then he talks about how there's religion and econo- and the economy and money and evil. under. There's all these things that are part of kind of life under the sun that are unavoidable for us. And this section ends kind of the same way as the first in Ecclesiastes 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy, uh, to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. The big takeaway in the first half of Ecclesiastes is twofold. Life is in gain, but it is a gift. Therefore, while you need to find something bigger to live for than anything under the sun, you need a bigger purpose, you need to find a meaning that is outside the things you can see in this world, you can still and you should still enjoy life because life, every second, every moment, everything is a gift from God. This is wisdom. The truly wise person lives for something more and still enjoys everything along the way. Now we're in the third section, okay? And this third section, that it kind of deals with the difficulties of living this way on the ground. This is a section of troubleshooting, like I said. What to do with all the, the tensions and apparent contradictions we face when we try to live as Ecclesiastes, <coughs> Ecclesiastes tells us to. And then the fourth and final section, we'll get there in a little bit is going to distill it down to the more pointed, practical advice that we need. Okay, It's going to give us a charge, kind of a way forward, a path to follow. Ecclesiastes, again, it's not an easy book, but the, the preacher wants us to have some very practical takeaways. That will be, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll be there in a couple of weeks, so we're going to finish in maybe five weeks, I think. So right now we're in the third section, troubleshooting, troubleshooting section. The key is wisdom. The preacher has already said that wisdom is not a panacea, okay, that is a cure-all. It's not going to fix all our problems. It's not going to take us out of the world. It's not going to take away kind of the, the difficulties and the vanities of things. 
It doesn't take us back to Eden. We still have to work. We still have money issues. There are still people around us who may or may not be easy to deal with. But wisdom is how we can enjoy and endure life under the sun, even with unforeseen obstacles. And that's what this chapter is about, okay? Chapter 8 is just about walking through some of the obstacles that we face in real life. So there are three main obstacles in this chapter, three obstacles to meaning and joy. First, there's despots, okay, despots. It's about the challenge of not being all-powerful. Okay, you go out into the world, and you have these plans and these ideas, things you want to do, and yet other people have other ideas, and they might be stronger than you. Second, darkness, okay, which is about the challenge of not being all-knowing. No matter how much you study, no matter how much you read, no matter how much time you spend on the Internet, you're not going to know everything. And then third, delay, which is about the challenge of not being eternal. We're trapped in the present. We can't control the past or the future. So despots, darkness, delay, first point, despots, which is about the challenge of not being all-powerful. Okay, let's just get into it. Verse 1, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Okay, so the beginning of this chapter and the end are specifically about wisdom intentionally, okay, or individually. And these words are from the preacher whom we have already identified as Solomon, David's son, who was the wisest man who had ever lived up to that point. Solomon commends wisdom here with a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? What he's getting at is wise people, wise people, they understand things at a deeper level. And then he goes on to say that wisdom makes the face shine. And all that has to do with, it's a figure of speech. Wisdom can make you happier. Okay, it's almost like a, a a biblical Old Testament wisdom version of it can turn that frown upside down. Okay, that's basically what it is. It can make your face shine. It can change the hardness of your face from consternation and kind of that stressed outlook to lightness. And this sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. We haven't even talked about the three obstacles yet, but understand the value of what the preacher is saying. No matter what the future holds, no matter how many difficulties you face, the wise person, the truly wise person can still smile in the face of it. I mean, if anything is a superpower, I think the ability to be happy, regardless of the circumstances, is a superpower. And that's what wisdom grants. Now, keep this in mind as we look at verse 2. Solomon says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, we'll talk about why he's saying this in a second. But first, first of all, just notice what his advice is. The first thing he says is do what the king says. Why? Because God has made an oath to him. Because God is the one ultimately who has put him on the throne. Now, it doesn't mean that God endorses everything that kings do. But this is a recognition that God is sovereign over every sovereign power. God is ultimately in charge. To submit to a king means to submit to God's plan. So there's a spiritual reason. And verse 3, there's also a practical reason. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The king can do whatever he wants. Same thing in verse 4. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Now, circle back to verse 3. He says in the beginning of this verse, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Don't try to get away from the king. See, in those days, the king would have a court, right? There would be other people who would kind of live there, pretty much noblemen and princes and such. And they would go in and out of the palace. They would advise the king. They would eat at the king's table. But they were ultimately servants. No matter how powerful they were, how much authority they had over their own jurisdiction, they still had to bend the knee to the king. A king has absolute power in his kingdom. And the preacher is saying, don't make the mistake of thinking you can just be out of sight, out of mind with the king. Just because you go out of his presence doesn't mean that you're no longer under his power. And this is the issue. You might be thinking, what does this have to do with anything? Okay, I don't, I don't know how this is wisdom for my life. I don't even live in a kingdom. Well, let me tell you a story, a very recent story in my life. My parents took us to Great Wolf Lodge uh, for the holidays just for one day. If you don't know what Great Wolf Lodge is, it's like a, a wolf lodge that is great. No, it's like a hotel 
Okay, and there's like a water park there. Um, and there's like other things you could do, other activities. There's an arcade for the kids. So it was really fun for my three kids. They had a great time. When we were checking out, okay, uh, in the lobby, you can see right into the, the water park area, right? There's like a huge like window and you could just see all these kids having fun. And one of my kids, I won't say which one it was, obviously it wasn't Levi, but one of my kids said, I want to go swimming. And I said, you know, we went swimming yesterday, but we got to go home now, right? We're checking out. We can't go swimming. And then my kid said, but I really want to. So I, you know, I knelt down and I, I turned to her and took her by the hand and uh, I escorted her to our car because we already checked out, right? We can't, we can't just go into the water park. Um, the truth is it didn't matter what she wanted. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, I care about her feelings. It does matter to me how she feels about it. But what I mean is when it comes to swimming or entry into the hotel or the water park, her will was insufficient to effect change because Great Wolf Lodge requires money to get in, okay? Otherwise, they're not going to let you in those doors, okay? The, the guard there is going to bar your entry. We have to follow the system. We can't get into the water park without permission. And this is how society works, kingdom or not. There are authorities in place. You are under authority. We might not live under a true tyrant or king or despot, but there are many places where we are simply not in charge. And however you feel about it, it doesn't change the fact. You can and maybe sometimes even should take unpopular stands, but understand this. If you go against the powers that be, you'll have to pay the consequences. This is what verse 3 talks about. Look again. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. When it says evil cause there, it's not talking objectively. Okay, about like something objectively evil according to God's law. It's talking about something subjectively evil according to the king. Okay, so maybe a better translation uh, of the Hebrew, something that we could understand a little bit better, is don't do bad things according to the king. Okay, because when you do things that the king thinks are bad, then you're going to cross his wrath. Do you understand that? If he doesn't like what you're doing, you're going to have to face the consequences. He's the king. He's in charge. So rather, verse 5, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Whoever keeps a command, that is the king's command, won't face bad consequences, and the wise person will know how to navigate this. Because wisdom is about recognizing power and properly responding to it. You know, some of you might know uh, the old Roman philosopher Seneca. Okay, he's one of the most famous Stoic philosophers. Uh, and his writings are still in circulation today. A lot of people quote him. Uh, I guess you could say in a worldly sense, he's for sure on the kind of in the pantheon of wise people. He tutored the emperor Nero. At one point, he was actually one of his two main highest advisors. And if you know anything about Nero, he was um, one of the more unhinged emperors in Rome. He persecuted Christians. He would put them on sticks and light them on fire as kind of lanterns along the Roman roads. But Seneca felt like he could advise him, that he could influence him, that he kind of understood the game. Now, for a time, he, he did play the game really well. Nero listened to him. Nero looked to him for advice. But as these things always go, eventually he fell kind of out of favor with Nero. Seneca tried to leave the presence of the emperor. He spent less and less time at court. He tried to retire to kind of this quiet country lifestyle to write, get away from politics. But just a couple of years later, Nero, who hadn't forgotten Seneca, accused him along with a few others that he didn't like anymore of attempting to kill him. And what he said to his old advisor was, kill yourself. He ordered Seneca to kill himself. And he did. He had to. Now, Seneca has this quote that you can still read today in his works. He who has great power should use it lightly. He who has great power should use it lightly. Key word here is should. That's how things should be. But Nero didn't, obviously, and Seneca paid the price. And that's how power often works. Might makes right in this world east of Eden. I'm not saying it's a good thing. We'll get to that soon enough. 
but it is reality. And this is the takeaway. And this is what uh, all of this is getting towards. This is what the preacher is trying to teach us. Real wisdom is about living well in the real world. Okay, it's fine to have your own idealistic notions of what should be the case. Real wisdom, though, is about living well in the real world. Don't be naive. Don't think idealism or principles or what should be the case will save you. They're insufficient to affect change against the powers that be in our world. Rather, wisdom can help you walk unscathed through the corridors of power. doesn't insulate you from those who are powerful, but it can help you walk unscathed through the corridors of power. It can help you even smile, though you're not in charge of everything. And when you might get some authority yourself, some power, it can help you wield it well. See, the thing is, a lot of us squander so much potential, uh, so much potential joy, excuse me, by stressing about how things shouldn't be the way that they are. You know what I mean? Like someone, you know, cuts you off on the highway and you're so bothered by it. You're so mad. Why did he do it? How could he do that? Doesn't he know the law? Didn't he know I was there? Well, the truth is he didn't care or she didn't care. Why is my boss so unreasonable? Why won't the government just clean itself up already? Why didn't that restaurant overall, its entire operation, I left a detailed review on Google. I told them exactly what to do. Why didn't they change? This is foolishness. This is madness. And look, I'm not saying that all change is futile. Okay, don't get me wrong. There are ways to affect change in this world when you have the power to do so. But complaining, stressing, just raging against the wind, raising your fists up to the sky, complaining is not just a sin, but it's ultimately a waste of time. It's vanity. The wise person understands this. You have to accept that in this world, some things are out of your control, and that's okay. And you can still smile. Now, hold that thought. You might have some questions, but we'll get into the second point first. First part is about power. Second part is about knowledge, darkness. Second point is darkness. It's about the challenge of not being all-knowing, about being in the dark, so to speak. Now, I'm not sure any class of people has taken more heat and kind of had the reputation more tarnished in the past couple of years than experts. Okay, it doesn't matter what field it is, whenever someone shows up and says that they're an expert in whatever, they're going to get as, maybe more eye rolls than people who care to listen. I was looking up uh, times experts got things wrong, um, just provable things. So like in 95, Robert Metcalf, he's the founder of like this electronics company. He said, Famously, I predict the internet will soon go spectacularly supernova and in 1996 catastrophically collapse. This is in 1996. This was from a leader and expert in the digital space. We'll see what happens. I think he was wrong. A guy named Eric Anderson, space expert. I don't know how you become like space expert, but he predicted in 2010, not that long ago, by 2020, you'll have seen private citizens circumnavigate the moon. I went to NASA a couple years ago. We're not going back for a long time. Maybe never. Maybe we never did. There's nothing like the president. I'm just kidding. Okay, we can talk about it later if you want. But uh, when I went to NASA and I saw the tinfoil that took Neil Armstrong to the moon, I'm like, did this happen? I never thought it could be true until now. But anyway, there's nothing like the present, okay, to show how bad the past was at predicting the future. Okay, we understand this. And yet we still try to do it. We want to know what's going to happen later. We want to see the models and the predictions. Now, it might seem like I'm unfairly knocking experts, but that's not my intention. The problem with experts isn't that they are experts, but that they are human. And this is where the preacher goes next. Look at verses 5 and 6. Notice the connection here between these verses. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For... There is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The wise heart will know the right thing to do at the right time. And there is a time and a way for all things. Ecclesiastes has covered this already. The preacher said back in chapter 3, 
There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, right? There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time for war and a time for uh, for peace, et cetera, et cetera. We get this. The problem is we don't know when the time is going to be. This is man's trouble that lies heavy on him. How do we know that? Verse 7, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? We know that things will happen. We know that there have been wars. We know that there has been peacetime. We know that every single person is born and then dies. But we don't know when, and we don't know how. And this is one of the heaviest burdens that lays upon the backs of humankind. When it comes to the future, no matter how informed the experts might be, it's still darkness to us. This is the human condition. We're limited to the present. I remember when Russia first invaded Ukraine. I was on social media, and one of the, the top trending, uh, I guess, phrases was World War III. And all these people, experts down to non-experts, were talking about, this is it, right? First, Russia's going to invade Ukraine, and then uh, China's going to take Taiwan. Mark my words, people were saying, these geopolitical experts, it's going to happen, and then who knows how it's going to spiral out of control, and we're going to find ourselves in World War III, and this is the end of the world. Thousands of people were talking about this. It didn't happen. Not saying it won't happen. It could very well still happen, but it didn't happen the way that people were saying. We don't actually know. When it comes to the future, no matter how smart we are, we're just guessing. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Stop there. It might be easy to miss what the preacher is saying here. The word for spirit is the word ruah in Hebrew, uh, and it means spirit or wind. The Greek actually has the same double meaning for spirit and wind. But when the preacher says chasing after the wind, one of his favorite phrases is chasing after the ruah, okay, the wind. But here the ESV translation uses the word spirit to translate it, which I think makes sense because it's talking about death and stuff. But I actually think wind is what the preacher has in mind here. Okay, no one has power over the wind. Okay, the wind is by definition ungraspable. And in the same way, the day of death, knowing the future, knowing what the future holds for you, it's similarly, if not in the same way, ungraspable by us. I mean, we want to know. This is why people look at life expectancy. This is why we're on the medications we are. This is why we exercise, because it adds 10 more years to my life. It doesn't. Okay? Now, I'm not saying you can still be healthy, okay, and God can use that, but God already knows the day of your death. It's already been written. The thing is, we just don't know. And then he says, verse 8, there is no discharge from war. Okay, why is he talking about war? Why is he talking about war incorrectly? Of course, there are discharges from the military. He's not switching subjects here. He's not wrong. Okay, it's a metaphor that he's using. Life is a war. And you're in it until you die. Just like in a, in a real war, you can either leave the war, you can win the war, or you die in the war. But in the war that is life, the only way out is death. There's no honorable discharge, and there's no dishonorable one either. If you look at the text, there's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. There's no quitting. There's no running away. And even if you think that you'll run as far away from God as you can, I don't want to think about these things anymore. I don't want to think about meaning in life. I don't want to think about going to heaven when I die and meeting my maker and answering for my decisions. I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just going to go live my life however I want, all the debauchery, all the, I'm going to drink my sorrows away. I don't care about wisdom. I don't care about righteousness. The fact of the matter is, according to the preacher, is you only have one life. And once you're born, you're in the battle. And the only way out is death. That's it. To live is your duty. Do we understand this? You're born and then you have your life and then you die. This is the existence of every human being. You can't control these things. You can only make the most of them. Don't go into denial. You know, when I was a kid, I hated roller coasters because I was kind of scared of them for whatever reason. I didn't like the feeling of dropping really fast. I remember my friend Tim and his family took me to Six Flags, and it was like torture. I think I'd rather have gone to Juvenile Hall, honestly. Like, they're like, let's go on this one, let's go on this one. And 
when I was in line, I felt like I was awaiting the gallows. I was like, oh my gosh. You could see like the roller coaster. I was like, oh my gosh. I don't know if I can survive. I did survive, spoiler alert. Um, but when I started dating Christine, my wife, she loves roller coasters. And uh, she wanted to go on them. We wanted to go on these dates to amusement parks. And her favorite rides are the straight drop ones, where you just go up and you just drop. And uh, I'm trying to win her love and admiration and her hand in marriage, right? So I can't just be like, actually, I'm too scared because of childhood trauma. I can't go on this. Why don't you go by yourself and I'll hold your purse? Like, I'm not going to do that, right? So I just went on roller coasters again and again and again, dozens of times, maybe even over a hundred times. And I grew to enjoy them. What else am I gonna, what, what else am I gonna do, right? I might as well have fun while I'm on there. Now, okay, there's a word that repeats in this section. Okay, the word man. The Hebrew word is Adam. Okay, human is the idea. So it's not man versus woman. It's man as opposed to God. Okay, we don't know the future. God does. So where does that leave us? We need to live our lives. We should enjoy the ride. But where does that leave us? How do we deal with that? Here's the thing. Okay, we got to make plans. We got to make wise decisions. We, we want to seek out the will of God for our lives. How do we actually start to enjoy things? How do we deal with the paralysis of not knowing the future? If you look again at verse 5. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Notice it says, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. It's about the heart. To the Hebrew way of thinking, the heart was not just the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. It wasn't just the emotions. That's kind of how we think about it, maybe metaphorically. The, the heart to the Hebrew mind was who you are inside, like the real you, okay, the inner person, it, your real motivations, your true thoughts, how, how you're actually feeling about things, no matter how you present on the outside, the genuine thing, okay? The key is to get your heart wise, to be someone who seeks to live according to what is wise and right and true. The clue is there at the end of verse 5. The wise heart will know the just way. See, the way to enjoy life, the way to, to deal with not knowing the future, is to stop trying to be God. Stop trying to be God. Yes, we want to know what will happen in the future. I want to know, okay, if I get this job, what will it lead to? Should I do this job or that job? What will be all the results of that, all the consequences? I want to know, should I marry this person or this person? I want to know, should I move here or here? What will happen if I make that choice? But the future will always be dark to us. That's not our purview. Instead of seeking to be God, we should seek simply to obey God. Just make sure you're on the just way. The way of justice, the way of righteousness in Hebrew, doing the right things and leave the results and the consequences in God's hands. This is a paradigm shift, a totally different way of thinking for some of us, but this is wisdom. We can't and we never will know the results. We can only know what God has revealed in his word. So, for example, don't ask the question, should I marry this person or not? Rather, ask yourself if you understand what it means to have a biblical and righteous and godly marriage. Get married to someone who is following after Christ. Be equally yoked. Focus on yourself. Am I the kind of person who can love as Christ has loved me? Do it the right way. That's the right way to do it. Does that make sense? Or don't get married and dedicate your life wholeheartedly to God and ministry. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this. It doesn't matter so much what job you take as long as you're making the decision with God in mind. Okay, so often we're like, well, what's the right job for me? God, just tell me this job or this job. He's already given you what you need to know. He's given you the tools to evaluate your own heart, your own priorities. Am I doing this just for the money? Am I doing this just because I, I think it's easy for me? Am I doing this to provide for my, you can think through these things biblically very easily. What about moving? Is it about how can I be most fruitful and effective in my life for and with God? 
Or is it only about the aesthetics of the house or the size of the living room or whatever it might be? And those things might not even be wrong, per se. But it's about having the right perspective on these things. This is what it means to walk in wisdom. And that's the name of the game here in Ecclesiastes, especially Ecclesiastes 8. Here's a simple rule of thumb all the way back from the 4th century. Augustine, okay, the greatest theologian in church history, once said, Love God and do as you please. Do you hear that? Love God and do as you please. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything you are, then you will be in the just way, and whatever you please to do will be right, because God is first in your heart. Does that make sense? John MacArthur put it like this, delight yourself in the Lord and do whatever you want. you got to change what you want. Don't seek to know the future. Seek to be faithful right here and now. This is your one life. Live it to death. The wise person understands this, and this leads to the third and final point, delays. Delays. It's about the challenge of not being eternal. Verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. The preacher brings our awareness back to where we live, under the sun where man has power over man to his hurt. This is not a world where it's easy to love God. That's what he's bringing up, or feel loved by God. This is not a world where it's easy to think of God at all, actually. And this is where he closes the chapter. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So he went to a lot of funerals, and he went to a lot of funerals for terrible people. And yet in their lives, these people that he knew for a fact were wicked, they were venerated for being good. Tale as old as time, hypocrites who went their whole life praised by the crowds for their righteousness, and yet God knew the truth. Sometimes cheaters do prosper, though. That's what Solomon is saying in this life. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. He's saying because people don't get punished right away, people keep doing bad things. Right, you get the logic. If you got your hand chopped off right away for stealing, a lot less people would steal. And if there was a machine that automatically cut off your hand when it detected that you were stealing, then for sure 0% of people would be stealing. But the truth is, evil deeds are not automatically and instantaneously punished. There's no way this could happen. And if you read the scriptures, you know that our sin goes beyond or maybe it goes beneath our deeds. We can sin in our hearts. How are you going to punish that? We can only see what we can see. We can't see into the heart. So what happens is we think we're getting away with it. And we keep going. We know how it is. I've heard people say before, Uh, I've heard this more than once. People will say, as kids, right, I had this sense of morality, this innocence. Like, I I was so afraid to lie, right? Or I was so afraid to to stay up late when my parents told me not to. I was so afraid to drive over the speed limit or to say a bad word. And then when they first did it, they were almost like bracing themselves for some kind of punishment. God's going to show up and strike me down or I'm going to get, get I'm going to get thrown in jail or someone's going to call me out but then nothing happened. So what did they do? They just kept saying the the same old bad words, more bad words, they kept stealing, they kept lying, whatever it might be. Their fear was gone. Now maybe some of you you totally know what I'm talking about. You do some truly bad things behind closed doors because you're not afraid of being caught. And this is where the preacher goes next. He goes to fear, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The tension for the preacher is between what he knows and what he sees what he knows and what he sees. He knows that ultimately those who fear God will come out on top. He knows that the wicked will suffer judgment, but this doesn't happen right away. It doesn't even happen in this life. Judgment comes after this life. 
So the battle is between what he knows and what he sees. The wise man lives according to what he knows, even when he doesn't see. See, the truth is, it's okay to live and let live with despots because we know that God is ultimately in charge and everyone will face his judgment. It's okay to seek to live faithfully now and leave the future to God because we know that ultimately everything's going to work out for the good. We know this. It's just in real life. You wake up on Monday and you look around at how everything's going. You check the news. You look at your work situation. You look at your finances, and it doesn't look that way. This is tough. So verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. This is what life east of Eden looks like. It requires faith. You know, Noah was one of the first people to grow up east of Eden. There weren't that many generations before Noah. He actually didn't live that far from where Eden was. It was still there. It was just gated off by a fiery sword. When God called Noah to build an ark because the world was going to flood, you've got to understand that the world had never even experienced rain before. Read Genesis again. Okay, the way that the world was before the flood was different. Okay, things were just different in how uh, the world was structured. It had never rained. And then the ark, there were no delusions that it was going to take 30 seconds to build. Okay, if you actually look at how long it probably took, it was probably, most people agree, 75 years. And maybe his son-in-laws were helping or something, his, his kids, his sons, I mean, and maybe his daughter-in-laws, I don't know. It wasn't an easy task. This is a lifetime of work for us, at least, for something that we only know is going to happen because God said so. The Bible commends Noah for his faith. And he was proven right to have it. But I bring this up to show it's not easy and it was never easy. The wise path is a lonely path. And understand, if God is real, if God is real, then faith is the wisest way to walk. If God is real, then faith is the wisest way to walk. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And a lot of people in church breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, I'm not a fool. I believe in God. Notice it says, the fool says in his heart, not with his mouth. See, people say, I believe in God. Even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. The fool doesn't just say with his mouth, there is no God. He says it where? Inside of him, in his heart, in his genuine thoughts, where his real motivations and and, and true self lie. This is about living like there is no God, even though you do go to church every week. See, the issue is, and this is what makes things hard, we know certain things as Christians, as believers in God. We've read the Bible. We've learned theology. We can give all the Sunday school answers, and yet when it comes time to live out what we actually believe, we don't actually fear God that much. Yeah, God, I know he's going to judge me for everything that happens. I know that there is a place for hypocrites. I know that if I am not living according to my faith, maybe I'm not a Christian. And yet, on this side, on this side, in real life, we're just doing whatever we want. There is no fear of God in our eyes. We live like might makes right is the only way. We live as if raging against the corruption of the world as if God doesn't have an end for everything. We sin with impunity because there doesn't seem to be any consequences. The wise person lives as if God is real, even though he seems distant, even though his justice feels delayed. The wise person fears God. And if you read the book of Proverbs, you would know this. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. If you're going to live wisely in God's world, it starts with the simple belief that God is God, and he is who he says he is. So how does the preacher end this? Verse 15, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. But this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, 
and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He ends with the limitation of wisdom. You won't know everything, you can't know everything, and that's okay. Just know the one thing you're supposed to know. God is God, and he has given you every day of your life. It's a gift from him, so make the most of it. Remember the gap between you and God and let the fear of God fill the space in between. No matter how much we toil or how wise we become, we will never know what he knows or be able to do what he does, so fear him. And this is what Ecclesiastes comes down to in the end. There are two things. Fear God and enjoy the life he's given us. If we're not doing these things more after Ecclesiastes is done, then we are just as foolish as when we began the series. Vanity isn't an option. Neither is joylessness. So how do we deal with the delays between our present moment and God's final justice between life on earth now and future glory in heaven? We keep going back to the instructions. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The truth is, life is short. Our waiting will be short. The hourglass of our lives is pouring sand even as we speak. The time is now to turn it around. See, the delay is not actually a bad thing. The delay is grace to us. Right now, you can change your life. You've been living for vanity. Today, you can start living for God. Jesus died so that we could have this future hope, so that we could have a life with God now. The cross is our proof that God keeps his promises. So if you are a Christian, don't be foolish. We'll close here. It probably took me about half an hour, okay, to get the faucet installed. Not terrible, but also not 30 seconds. But this week, as we had dishes to wash and hands to wash and kids wanted to get water from the sink, I could turn on the faucet and the handle doesn't fall off. The hot water works, the cold water works, and that's the point of it. Wisdom helps you to live life the way you're supposed to. Don't have delusions of grandeur. Our lives are a vapor. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. But that doesn't mean that your life is not important. That doesn't mean that there's not a use for your life or a purpose. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't use it and, and live it to the fullest. And you can enjoy a nice meal. You should. You can hang out with your friends. You can watch a movie. You could drink a Coke. This is the gift of God. But if you've been trying to find your life in fun or in work or any other vanity, you'll eventually find that you need to live for more. Wisdom helps you to live life the way you're supposed to, to live for that more. So fear God, enjoy life, and ask yourself the question, will I be wise or not? Let's pray. God, we simply ask that you would give us wisdom. God, we know that that's what your word says, that if we ask for wisdom and we ask in faith, that you will give it to us. God, we seek to live lives of meaning and purpose We seek to live lives of joy and peace. And I pray, God, that you would grant us that. We pray this in your Christ's name. Amen.